Genesis chapter 46. I am going to read the whole chapter, and it's one of those chapters that has names, but it's not a lot of names like some of the chapters sometimes have, but there are names that are here. And there is, I believe, a specific reason why these names are here that we'll talk about. But pay attention to the names and numbers. Names and numbers. Genesis chapter 46. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in their wagons, which Pharaoh had sent to him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben, Hanak and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, and the sons of Simeon, Jemuel and Jamin and Ohad and Jakin and Zohar and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Mirari, the sons of Judah, Ur and Onan, and Shelah, and Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron, and Halmul, and the sons of Ishkar, Tola, and Puvah, and Ab, and Shimron, and the sons of Zubalan, Sered, and Elon, and Jalil, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion and Hagi and Shuni and Esbon and Iri, uh, Iri and Aradi and Areli. The sons of Asher, Emna and Ishva and Ishvi and B. Riah and their sister Sarah, and the sons of Beriah, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these sixteen persons. The sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph and the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him the sons of Benjamin, Bela and Becher and Ashbel, Gira, Anaman, Hai, and Rosh, Mapim and Hupim and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob. There were fourteen persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hashem. The sons of Nephtali. Jaziel and Guni and Jazir and Shilam. 
These are the sons of Bilal, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel. She bore to these Jacob. There were seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's sons, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt, 70. Now, he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. Remember, it had been at least 22 years. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. And so ends this section with that note. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, as we gather here this morning, we do remember those that are uh, traveling and those that are sick. Lord, we pray that you would give protection for all and, and bring healing for all. We thank you that we can gather here together with you, and we pray that the reading of your word, that the hearing of your word, the singing of your word would be found acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer, and by your spirit may we be men and women that do the word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There were notes to my left or right on the counter. If you are looking for a title of this sermon, it is called Family Road Trips of Faithfulness. I don't really put a lot of time into titles. If it comes, it comes. If not, I just put something down. However, the reason why I have this title is because if you look at Genesis 46, the main theme, generally the main theme is what? A road trip. This is a family road, road trip. Have you ever been on a family road trip before? Most likely you have. I know the uh, Joneses got back from a road trip. And they went to, I think, all the way to Ohio and to the, the Dakota and Dakotas and came all the way back down. My family, my dad, used to love to go on road trips. And we lived in Orlando, Florida. And he had a big mobile traveler, Winnebago type of vehicle. And one time we drove from Orlando, Florida, all the way to Bend, Oregon. And then came back a slightly different way. So we went through two-thirds of the United States of America. It was a, a great trip. This other trip one day, my dad got up and said, during the summertime, said, son, boys, let's go to Nova Scotia. So we hopped in the mobile traveler, got in, and we drove to Nova Scotia, and then drove back. 
my dad loved to travel. He was actually a coal truck driver for a while in the Appalachian Mountains, decades and decades ago. But these family road trips were unbelievable. We had so much fun. But whenever you go on a road trip with the fun, there was always what? There's all there's stress, there's arguments. I would say almost every time we went on a road trip, there'd be vapor lock. Almost repeatedly, there'd be something would happen with the engine. I know the Pollocks went on a long road trip, and I think they had engine problems. This is months and months ago. Whenever you go on a long family road trip, there there are usually some problems. We went to Sun River. It's, it's kind of near Bend, Oregon in April. I don't think we had any problems, but there was snow, there was ice, and there was strong wind. Family road trips are, are fun, but there's always interesting things that happen along the way. Some of the best family road trips that I've gone on with my family, especially to Oregon and back to Orlando and then to Nova Scotia, there was always times of growth, great family growth. We had an awesome time. There were obstacles. I can re- remember one time we were in the Appalachian Mountains, and uh, I'm not sure, this is many years ago, I'm not sure what happened, but the engine didn't work, and the brakes didn't work very well. And so we ended up, my dad was able to kind of back the big mobile traveler halfway on, on the pass, and so my brother and I had to get out and stand around the curve in order to be sure the other cars didn't come full blast around and hit us. There were always things like that that happened. But those were also times for for growth. I say all that to say, when you look at this chapter here, God is basically asking Jacob to go on a major road trip. But it's not just there and back. It's kind of there and back, but it's go to Egypt, you're going to die, then you're going to go <laughs> come back home. But first, go to Egypt. And what does Jacob do? In the past, perhaps Jacob would have wrestled with the Lord. But what does Jacob do? He says, here I am, Lord. And he goes. And God will do that to you and I, based upon his word, and we'll talk about that, based upon his word, there are times when God says, I want you to do this. And it may seem difficult, but God tells us in his word to do something. And by faith, we do it. And God gives us whatever we need to do that which he calls us to do. And that's what we see here in this passage primarily, is that God is calling Jacob and those sons with him, I want you to go and do this and live here. And then we see in this whole passage that God provides. God gives Jacob and the family of Israel whatever they needed. Even even before Jacob left, God had already prepared what? Pharaoh and Joseph and all the land of Egypt and even Goshen. Whatever God calls you to do, God will provide what you need to do that. So we can see it this way. When God calls you to action, he will provide what you need to be faithful. It's God's faithfulness that is the foundation for our faithfulness. God's faithfulness is the foundation for our faithfulness. God says, do this. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I'll be with you. Well, God is faithful to do what he says. Based upon his faithfulness, we can be faithful. 
Do what God wants you to do, and God will give you what you need to do what you need to do. God will tell you to do something based upon his word, and God will give you what you need to do what you need to do. Whatever you need to do is what God says. And whatever you need to do, God will give you that which you need so that you can do that. And that's generally, and even I think primarily, the the flow of this text. Now, remember the, the context here that we have is that Jacob didn't have a a Bible. You can see in verse 2, God spoke to Israel in visions of the night. Jacob didn't have the Bible. Jacob didn't have the book of Genesis, right? (laughs) Moses, God through Moses, is writing the book of Genesis. We now have the completed word of God. The faith has been uh, delivered once and all to the church. So we have that external written word of God that, that we trust and that God speaks to us through. God does not speak to us in visions of the night in our dreams. He speaks to us in the written down, recorded vision, God's word. Now, with that in mind, but with that understanding, there are different dynamics that we see in this passage of our faithfulness. God calls us to action, and God will be faithful to support us And this action he calls us to, it's our responsibility to be faithful. And when we look at this passage, there's many dynamics that we see of faithfulness. God's going to be faithful. God's going to do what he promises to do. It's our responsibility to be faithful. What does that look like in this passage in our life? So first, the, the first dynamic is this. The first dynamic of our faithfulness. Focus on that God is always faithful to his promises. He keeps all of his promises all the time. God will always do what he says without failure. Always. This is a very clear biblical truth. First, in this passage itself, look at verse 3. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I make you a great nation. God of your father... That would be who? That would be Isaac. And then Isaac's father was Abraham. And God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac he would give them the land of Canaan, but even make them a great nation. And God here is reminding Jacob that I'm going to keep my promise. I have not forgotten my promise that I've made to your grandfather and to your father. That plan is still on. I'm going to keep my entire promise. And then as we read through the rest of this passage here, really verses 3 all the way to uh, to 27 is evidence of what God is doing to keep his promise. Remember, you had Abraham and Sarah. And God told Abraham, and remember, Abraham, what was he? past 90, forgotten, was he almost 199, something like that, and Sarah was 90 or 91, and God said, I'm going to make a great nation from you two. And it was just them. That's it. But now, God is reminding Jacob, 
and the nation of Israel that is hearing this, that's receiving the book of Genesis, and they're wandering around in the wilderness about to go into the promised land, they have then this list of names. God is reminding them, I made this promise. I have been keeping it. I'm going to keep keeping it, even though it's not a detour. I am directing you to this place, to Egypt, for refuge, to help you, to protect you, to provide for you, to save you. But I want you to realize that I'm keeping my promise. It was Abraham, Aris, Sarah. Now how many are there in total in Jacob's household? Verse 27. Seventy. Seventy. There were two. Now after how many generations? Three. There's seventy. And they have a lot of livestock. God is blessing. God is keeping his promise. You can look at verse 6. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. And there is a point that the text continues to make. Verse 6, all his descendants. Verse 7, all his descendants. This is illustrating that God has kept his promise to the nation Israel, to Abraham. Even you can look at the very end of the passage where it says that you may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Even in a, a land that would be difficult in one sense to live in, uh, Israel being primarily their job was shepherds, God in, in the midst of that is providing a place of abundance for them to live in in Goshen in this foreign land. That's God keeping his promise. Even in famine and hatred, God keeps his promises. And all of this, again, is leading to that wonderful statement in chapter 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And all of this is going back ultimately to Genesis 3.15 that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. Because if Jacob and his line were to die off, then there would be no messianic line. There would be no savior. There'd be no Jesus. God would have failed. But God keeps his promise and his promises, and he never fails. And that's ultimately why we have here in Scripture and First Corinthians, sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 1, you may remember this, we've mentioned it before, God's promises start in really Genesis 3.15, and then they end with Christ and his return. They are fulfilled in an overwhelming way with his incarnation, death, and resurrection, but listen to Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God and him, they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. The New Testament expands on the promises of God and clarifies the promises of God, but answers so many of the promises of God Mainly the, the eschatological promises are the ones that are not yet fulfilled. Otherwise, the promises of God have been fulfilled. It's such a priority, you, these promises of God, you might remember as well, Second Peter chapter 1, 
verse 4. And so what, what I'm illustrating is even back in Genesis, in Genesis 46, you have all these lists of names. The list of names are illustrating, especially by all the numbers, that God has kept his promises to Abraham and to Sarah. The Israel is becoming a great nation. Even during famine, he's going to protect them, put them in the, the ruling superpower of that time and put them in a land in that land of abundance. God is keeping his promises. In the New Testament, we see the same emphasis on promises. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4. By these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nation, have an ex- divine nature, have an escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Precious and magnificent promises. The whole Bible has this theme of God's promises, really from beginning to end. Therefore, truly, we can say that the sun coming up tomorrow is not as sure as God keeping up, keeping all of his promises. It is for sure that God will keep all of his promises. It is not 100% for sure that you and I will see tomorrow. Correct? But it is 100% certain that God would keep every single promise that he's ever, ever made. And that should be our, our focus. And I believe that's what God is telling Israel as they have the book of Genesis. And as they are winding around now, a large nation of over 2 million people about to go into the promised land, keep this focus on the fact that God always keeps all his promises that he has made. This should be also then our central focus. Nothing can stop the promises of God. You can consider this famine. Is is this famine going to hinder? Is it going to stop the promise of God? No. Is the evil brothers of Joseph, are are they going to stop the promises of God? No. Can Pharaoh stop the promises of God? No. Can a famine stop the promises of God? No. Can, can evil plots by evil people stop the plan of God, the, the promise of God? No. Can slander or dungeons stop the promises of God? No. Can anybody in your life stop God from keeping the promises that he's made to you? No. Therefore, our responsibility must be not thinking about all those people that have not kept their promises to us, but rather we focus our mind on the God who has and is and will keep all of his promises. That's what we focus on. So what is it that God is wanting you to do based upon God's word? What is it that God wants you to do? Whatever it is, you can do it. Why? Not not because you are a mighty Christian, but because God is mighty in keeping his promises. That's why you can do whatever God wants you to do. Second, there is a second dynamic that we see in this passage, the second dynamic of faithfulness, and that is we obey God's word without fear. We obey God's word without fear. What is it that God wants you to do? Again, based upon his word. 
there could be something right now that you're convicted about in your life that you need to change, an area that you need to take a step of obedience. But perhaps you're afraid. Maybe somebody might say something. Maybe you're afraid of failure. Maybe you're afraid of being embarrassed. What is it that God wants you to do? There can be times we can be afraid to do it. There can be times where I can be afraid to even ask for forgiveness. Because if I ask for forgiveness, then I'm going to be admitting I was wrong. <laughs> and, you know, and, and then is Lisa going to trust me? Is Lisa going to think highly of me? What is she going to think about me? That I was wrong. And we can have this fear. And you can look here at the text itself and see verse 3 he said I am God I am the God of your father do not be afraid to go down to Egypt Egypt is the superpower they enslave people Pharaoh is a with a small l lord of the known world and God is telling Jacob go to Egypt this is what I want you to do and don't be afraid I want you to do this. Have no fear. Why is this? Well, if you look at the text, he says, I am the God of your father. Don't be afraid. And then he gives the reasons why. For I will make you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again back to Canaan. You're going to die there. But I'm going to be certain that you and Joseph and Israel are going to be a massive nation and you're going to be back in the land of Canaan. I will be with you. Obey God's word. Obey what I said is what God is saying because I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect your your children. I'm going to provide for you. I am with you. you. You don't have to be afraid. Don't live in fear. And it's interesting because God... And instructive... God doesn't tell Jacob, you're going to live forever. Go to Egypt and you're never going to die. He says, go to Egypt, basically you're going to die. I think it's about 17 years after he goes to Egypt that he dies. Something close to that. And he says, Joseph though will close your eyes. Joseph will be there and you pass away and will be certain that Eventually, your your body gets the land of Canaan. But until it's time for you to die, what? I will protect you and provide for you. That's basically what God is telling Jacob. Until it's time for you or your descendants to die, I will protect you and provide for you. That's true for you and I. Truly, we are immortal on this earth until it's our time. And Satan doesn't have the power to say, this is the day that Tom dies. That has to be ran by who? God has to approve of that. God's in charge of our life and of our death. And so whatever God wants you to do, you can do it without fear because God is with you. God's going to protect you. These promises that God makes, he will keep them. We've seen that already with the first point. So we're focusing that God always keeps his word. If God says he's going to do this, that he's going to be here, then that's going to be true. Then that's 
the, the reality. Now, in the New Testament, of course, you're, you're familiar with these passages, right? Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded them. And I am with you how long? Behold, I am with you always. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. But even look at the end, toward the end of the, of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, I think is an incredible verse and very encouraging. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Make sure your character is free from the love of money. Be, being content with what you have. Why? Because he said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? This is basically what's happening in Genesis 46. God is telling Jacob, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm with your children. I have a plan. I've made a promise. I will keep it. You will pass away. I will provide for you. Trust me. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Money can't always be with you. Funds can't always be with you. They come and go. Family is great. Praise God. You know, it's good to have some funds. Even better is family. Family, they're not always going to be with you. Not in this life. But God, he's always with you. The Lord is always with you. You can never be away from the presence of God. Even a medical staff or hospital, you, you may not be able to always get to. But God is always with you. Always. Even a protective security detail, the army, whoever it might be, may not always be there to protect you. But the Lord is Always there. Always. I've been in some very remote places in India and in Myanmar, some very, where there was hardly anybody there and the people that were there, I didn't speak their language. But God was always there. The Lord was always there. There has never been a time in my life when the Lord wasn't there. And it's true for you too. And this is what God is telling Jacob and his children. I am there. You can do what you need to do because I am there personally and I'm there to provide and protect you based upon God's promises. So then the, the question then is this. Do you know God's promises? Can you seek to know his promises? How many promises do you know? And when I say that, I, I'm not saying that to, to bring a, a scolding diatribe to you or to produce self-righteousness. Perhaps you might say, well, I know 10, 10 promises of God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, have you tried to memorize and to meditate upon any promises of God? If I say, how many do you know, I'm not saying that as, okay, you've known seven. That's God's holy number. That's good. But rather I'm saying, however many we know, let's be sure we know those and and get even more. We need to labor to know the promises of God. 
like First John one seven, right? And I'm sure you, I'm sure that many of you know this. The, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That's a, a great promise to remember. Second Corinthians nine eight. Now I think I've tried to memorize it probably ten times. God's able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency you might have an abundance for every good deed. And I'm sure I've left out something somewhere. I can never get it perfect. I want to keep striving though. These promises we we need to have lodged in our head and and our heart. You would never, I, I don't think, not maybe no, I, I'm sure you would. You you brush your teeth, right? I, I'm sure you would. Would you never not brush your teeth, children? Do, do you brush your teeth? I know she does. I, I know my daughter and son love to brush your teeth all the time. What happens if you don't brush your teeth? Do you die? You know, you, you can go for a long time without brushing your teeth. You can. But eventually what happens? Your mouth gets stinky. Your teeth decay. And ultimately, do you know that if you don't take care of your teeth, it can go to your heart and you can have a heart attack? It takes a long time, but that can happen. You would always brush your teeth, though. <laughs> because you, you don't want to be stinky in your mouth. You always brush your teeth. That, that's a great habit to have. Even a, a better habit, however, to have is to know the promises of God because it's especially the promises of God that the Bible says will help you not to have a stinky life. The promise of, of, of God will keep you from sin and help you to walk in God's favor and in God's blessing. We labor to do many things and those things aren't necessarily bad, but we need to do those things and even more remember and remind ourselves of God's promises. They undergird and fuel our obedience. God truly is a refuge. I've these are all passages I've already memorized, but as I've said several times recently, I, I keep forgetting them. Uh, Psalm forty-six, I think it's verse seven. It says that the Lord. It says that the Lord of hosts is with us. It's really uh, Yahweh of the armies of heaven is the idea. Yahweh of the armies of heaven is with us. And I bring that up because here God says in verse four. And in verse 3, especially, uh, for I will, and I will go down, and I will. These are all emphatic. There's basically a way the Hebrew is putting the I first, making it very, the verb usually came first. This is very, I will do this, I will do this, I will be with you, and I will do this for you, and I will do this for you. And it's the Lord, it's it's Yahweh, the, the host of the one that's in charge of everything is the idea. And Psalm 46, of course, says God is our refuge and strength. And it's these promises of God that when we remember and focus on them, that helps us not to be afraid. We're not afraid, not because I have, I'm going to obey God, I'm, I'm going to do it, I'm going to say no to this sin. I am... No, it's by, by your grace, Lord, I will obey, but it's because of the mighty promises of God. And I, 
I'm not going to be afraid of anything that might happen to me if I obey in this situation. If I fear anything, I'm going to fear what? God. I'm going to seek to live in his promises, knowing that he'll provide, he'll protect. I fear him. How can we get to this place when we're living this way? Again, Jacob is making this massive family road trip, not just with four, five, six, twelve, twenty, but with at least 70 people and a bunch of animals. He's moving. It's not just vacation. He's moving. I think he's able to do this because we see this in verse 1. He offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. I think he, Jacob, was able to walk in this kind of faith because he was worshiping God. So the third dynamic we can say of faithfulness is this. Keep the fire burning. Weave worship into your work. Uh, I'm sorry, weave worship into your daily week, throughout the week, every day and every week and throughout every month and throughout the whole year, you're worshiping the Lord. And so we've seen these dynamics. We focus on that God keeps his promises. Because of that, we can obey God without fearing the world or our own failure because he promises he'll forgive us when we do fall flat on our face. He says, I will forgive you. How can we have this kind of commitment, this kind of faith? Because we are consistently worshiping God. This is a reoccurring theme in the book of Genesis. Again, Genesis 46.1, And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. We've seen that from Abraham, from Isaac, and now from Jacob, and we'll see it through the rest of the Bible, is that there is this worship of God that includes an understanding of atonement. And that's really what you have here. You have Israel, Jacob, that hears the news that Joseph is alive. What is his response? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You're awesome, Lord. I'm a sinner. My sin, my son's sin need to be atoned for, but we give you praise. That's what's happening, I believe, in Genesis 46.1 with, and they offered sacrifices to God. Worship, true worship, will see the need for redemption, for covering of sin. Because as you spend time with God, as you give worth to God, as you see how worthy he is and give him more and more worth, you see how unworthy you are, how sinful you are, and that you need to have your sin covered and cleansed and forgiven. Worship is giving God his due glory. Worship is this sweet, sincere, serious exaltation of all that he is, seeing how worthy he is and how you are unworthy. But you give the Lord his His glory, his praise, because of how gracious and kind he is. And ultimately, this too points to the New Testament, to First Peter chapter 3, 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Oftentimes in the Bible, when it talks about worship, it will bring up sacrifice. Again, because there is this 
recognition, this re- realization that without atonement, as I worship God and see how glorious he is, without my sin being taken care of, I could be consumed. And here you have Jacob, even before he makes the trip. He's getting right with God. He's thanking God. He's worshiping God. He's spending time with the Lord. And so that's why I say keep the fire burning. And by that, that there should always be in our hearts this, the, the Lord is awesome. The, the Lord is glorious. I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful for that perfect life of Christ, for his sacrifice on the cross for sinners, for his resurrection, that he would cleanse me of my sin and forgive me. I'm reminded in the book of Lamentations where it says, How shall any man offer a complaint in view of his sin? And this is what I think Jacob is doing. He's very thankful. He sees his sin. He's worshiping God. He's giving glory to God for God's compassion, for God's grace. But we as well should make this a reoccurring theme. As I've said, we see this throughout the book of Genesis, but it should be a reoccurring theme in our life. Yes, on Sundays, but throughout the week, there should be this worship of God. And I think that's why, again, you have in Philippians 3.3, where Paul says that we worship in the Spirit. Paul in Philippians 3.3 is basically defining what a Christian is. We place no confidence in the flesh, and we worship God in the Spirit. We give him the glory. We keep this fire in our heart for him burning. If there is no worship, then our faith will be weak. If you're not spending time with God, reading his word, praying over his word, either quoting songs or singing songs to him, enjoying him throughout the whole week, then he won't seem as powerful to you. He won't seem as lovely to you. He won't seem as great to you. And so you won't be inclined to trust his promises, and then you'll have more fear, and then you'll obey less. A huge part of obedience is that you throughout the week are worshiping God. And it can seem, if we're not careful, I think to some, it can seem not a powerful enough technique. Oftentimes, I think, in a Christian life, at least in counseling, some people want a technique. Tell me what to do. Give me like six steps. Christianity at its foundation is John 17, is it three? To know God and his son whom he has sent. That's biblical Christianity, that you have a real relationship with the Lord. And the more that you understand how awesome he is and spend time with him and give him glory, that will invigorate your soul to be able to walk in even a type of risky obedience for him. Worship produces more faith. It does. And sometimes, maybe I should say all the time, Disobedience comes out of a lack of true worship of God. We're worshiping something else. There's also now a fourth dynamic 
So what we said is, as we look at this passage, God is calling Jacob to take the whole family, go on this massive road trip, and stay there, not just for a vacation, but stay there. He doesn't mention the year it's here, but basically stay there for 400 years. That's a long time. Jacob responds in obedience. Involved with this is there's this focus on God's promise. There is, okay, I can obey without fear because God's made this promise. Involved with this is the Lord is glorious. He's awesome. I'm a sinner. I need my sin covered. God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. And so I'm going to worship him. I'm going to worship you, Lord. You get the glory. And then out of that, there's this fourth dynamic that we see. And that is, encourage yourself with God's presence. This is one of the specific promises of God that we've mentioned. But as I've said, it's, it's very pronounced here. And it's one of the main promises of God. Look at verse 4. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And as I said, these I wills, I wills are, are pretty emphatic, uh, underscoring. It's God making this promise that I will be with you in person always. It's great to have Joseph there. It's great that you're going to meet Pharaoh. So Jacob's going to, going to know that his, his son is the second in command, basically, of the known world. That's pretty good. And then the second in command, of course, has a close relationship to the first in command, Pharaoh. But God here says, better than all that, is that I will go down with you to Egypt. When you go to Egypt, when you go south to the land of Egypt, I'm the one that will be with you, Jacob. And that's why Jacob can go. It's because the Lord is going to go with him. And if the Lord is going with him, then he'll have love, protection, power, grace, mercy, wisdom. This is why Jacob can do this. And so we need to ask ourselves, what are we emphasizing to ourselves? If all the promises of God, they're all great, but this one, I will go down with you and I will bring you up. God is with Jacob, and the Bible says, right, Emmanuel, that this is ultimately fulfilled with Christ coming himself and his incarnation. I will be with you. As we said then, Matthew 28, Hebrews 13, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We have, we believers of the temple of the Holy Spirit, we have the Spirit of God in our very lives. The Lord is always with us. So then my, my question to ourselves is, what are we emphasizing to ourselves? We need to emphasize to ourselves that God is with us. It, it is funny to me. It, it's maybe easier for us that are older. There was a time in life when we didn't have cell phones. There was a time in the U.S. or overseas, uh, Russia, India, wherever I was, when that I, I never dreamed of being able to pick up a cell phone and calling somebody around the world. There were times in India where I had to go to a phone shop and make an appointment for the next day or two days from now because they would call the U.S. 
and be able to set up a, a line, but it took a day or a day and a half. This was in the 90s, late 80s and 90s. But now, when I went back to India, I had a, a little track phone. This is 2004, 2003, I can't remember. I had a little track phone. All the Indians had these big, smart cell phones. And I had a little track phone, and they were laughing at me. You're an American. Where's your big smartphone? I could press a button once I got my smartphone and talk to my mom. I could talk to anybody. Another side of the world like that. What's going to happen if the power grid goes down? I keep hearing, I keep reading, there are different states which have said, of course, California, there's different states that have warned this summer the power grid might go down. Have you seen that? I've seen that. It's 2022, and the power grid might go down. And some Americans are like, stock up on food, the power grid's going to go down. You know, in India, I think I just said it with an Indian accent, in India, three times a week the power would go off. It was very normal. We'd go days without power. Days. And I got so hot and it got so sweaty, Lisa would take a towel, put it under the water, under the cool water from the, the faucet, and then wrap that towel around her head. That's how hot it would get. I had to go and preach, sometimes even in, in a tie, and there'd be no power, and it might be 95 degrees with 90% humidity. Uh, you know, we, we've gotten very comfortable. What, what, what am I saying is that for us, there can be a great temptation of, I need this. You know, I, I need my cell phone. I need power. I got to have my car. Gotta, I got to have internet. Like if I had a choice, car, internet, food, I might choose internet. I got to have my cable connection. Their reality is you need one thing, God. God, and he, he's with you. And that's what this passage is saying. This specific promises, there are many promises, and encourage yourself that the Lord is always with you. So if you're in a time in your life, maybe you think God is distant. If you think that, it's because probably, probably you've grieved the Spirit of God and confess your sin, get right with God through Jesus Christ. But God's promised believer, he will never leave you. If you feel distant, maybe you need to confess some sin and spend time with him and get right with him. But there's never a place, any believer in this room, there's never a place, even if you're in sin, yes, you need to confess that and get right with God, and get right with God but God is never far from you. His spirit is in you and he is with you and he is for you to provide and protect you until it's time for you to go home. When it's time for you to go home, then God will bring you home. But until then, he will protect you and provide for you. And we need to encourage ourselves with this because there are times when if I do this, if I obey what God's saying, you know, maybe I'll lose my job. Maybe my spouse won't like me anymore. Maybe my kids won't like me anymore. Maybe my neighbors won't like me anymore. I'm talking about not just something, not, not just a thought we have in our head, but based upon God's clear word, you make a decision to obey God. And that could result 
and something bad. You know, it's not, the Bible doesn't say, and God doesn't say, obey me and your life's going to be happy. And everything's going to go well. Jesus said, if, if you want to follow me, do what? Pick up the cross. <laughs> that was a sign of execution. If you really want to follow me, it's going to be difficult. At the same time, yes, Jesus says that he would carry our burdens. Yes, he does. And he gives us his power and his strength. But when we seek to obey God, there's usually some difficulties that come along the way. But God says here and throughout the Bible, I'm with you. I'm with you always. Now, there's a fifth dynamic then to, I wouldn't say balance this, but to clarify this, there's a fifth dynamic, and that is resist presumption. Resist presumption. And you see this in verses 31 to 32. Walking by faith, trusting God's faithfulness, does not mean you abandon all your responsibilities. Walking by faith, walking without fear, trusting God's promises, looking at God's word, you, you know God wants you to do something, you're convicted in your heart, you, you set out to do it, doesn't mean that you abandon normal means. You can see here in verse 31, Joseph says to his brothers, he's going to go and tell Pharaoh, in other words, Joseph doesn't just move his family in to Goshen. <laughs> he doesn't say, I'm second in command of Egypt. We're going to do this. He uses proper means. Proper, appropriate responsibilities. And so he's going to go to Pharaoh. He even tells his family what they should say. This is probably what you should say to Pharaoh. Okay? To be sure things go right. Even if you look at verse 6, Jacob doesn't say, you know what? God's going to provide. God said he's going to do this, 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 and this in verse 4. And so at verse 6, Jacob, by faith, left his livestock to all the Canaanites. No, it says in verse 6, they took their livestock and their property with them to Egypt. He lacks faith. If Jacob would have had faith, he would have given away his livestock. That may be how... We or some might be tempted to think, but when you look at verse 6, he takes his livestock with him. That was appropriate. That was wise. And here, Joseph is being wise. Even, it says in verse 28, that Jacob sent Judah before him to Joseph to point the way how to go to Goshen. How come Jacob just didn't pray, Lord, I pray that you would... Give me a, a sign. You lead me to Goshen. You direct me. No, he has Judah lead the way. So what I am pointing out, that the text is pointing out, is that though God and his providence does great things, and this whole section, 37 to 50, it's not that Jacob or Joseph or Judah abandon normal means. There's responsibility. It's not trust God's plan and then sit back. It's trust God's plan. You plan, prepare, and go. Trust God's plan, pray, plan, prepare, and then go. Now, there are times in life where you trust God and go. <laughs> you have to. You don't have a choice. But if you have a choice and you have time, 
Then you trust God, you pray, you plan, you prepare, you're wise, and then you go. And so we see that in the text. Now, living in faith in the Lord does not mean one presumes upon the Lord. Uh, for, for example, you might remember, of course, in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, where Satan tells Jesus, look, if you're really the Son of God, just jump off, jump off this high cliff, and of course, God's going to send his angels to take charge of you. And Satan quotes out of context that passage, and Jesus says, actually, it is written, and he gives the the context of the passage, and says, I'm not going to test the Lord. That's wrong. To presume upon God. We can misuse or misappropriate God's promises, and Jacob's not doing that. Again, it says in verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt. Well, if that's true, then why is Jacob taking his livestock in verse 6? Because he's not dumb. He's not dumb. If there's a fire, would you go, I'm such a godly person. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things to God who strengthens me. And you place your hand in a fire. What's going to happen to your hand? You're going to get burned. And you were dumb. It wasn't that God didn't come through. Just you, you weren't very smart. You weren't very wise. And at times, presumption really is foolishness masked as faith. You're, you're pretending you have faith, but you don't. If I'm going to camp, I've decided this next church camp, I'm not going to bring my tent. I'm going to trust God. And I, I get there. I have my kids with me. My wife is with me. And I, I didn't make arrangements for the cabin. Eventually, Lisa's going to say what? Tom, where's the tent? And I'm going to say, woman, trust God. What do you think she's going to say to me? Tom, can you and I have a little talk? (laughs) Yeah, what happened? And then very politely, (laughs) so correct me. Because I would be presuming upon God and upon you that you're going to provide me a tent or a place to stay. That would also be wrong. That's not faith. And so there's a difference between presumption and faith. It it, it may be like if I said, God's calling me to India. And by faith, I'm going to India. Well, if I don't get a passport, I can't even get through security. I'm not even going to leave the airport without a passport. There are normal means and responsibilities that we have to perform and the plans and purpose of God, there are normal responsibilities that we still have to do. God says he will provide, but that doesn't mean that we don't plan, prepare, and do things that are appropriate. Faith walks by sight, but faith doesn't walk by just being foolish or or dumb. Walking by faith you still look at the word, right? Faith doesn't walk by sight, and that means I'm not looking at the world and what the world says is true, but rather I look at the word and what the word says is true. That's faith, and that's not presumption. 
Now finally then, we end with this sixth dynamic. And we've said that there are these different dynamics. God is telling you, he's telling me this morning, and his word, this is what I want you to do. There may be something in your life, maybe God is making a specific application of his word by his spirit to your life that he wants you to do. And God says, this passage primarily, God will give you what you need to do so that you can do what you need to do. God will give you, he will be faithful so that you can be faithful. What does this look like? And we've said that there are these different dynamics in the passage. Focus on God's promises. Obey without fear. Be sure you're worshiping God. If you want to focus on one promise, this one promise here is that God is with you. I will will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And then we said, fifth, resist presumption. But there's a sixth big picture. I'm sorry. There's a sixth dynamic. And that's keep the big picture in front of you. There's a sixth dynamic. Keep the big picture in front of you. And again, I go back to all these, all these names. And I'm talking about, there's, if you're looking at your notes, there are several components of this big picture in the text. But I look at all these names of people. And really, every name here is a sign of God's faithfulness. These 70 people, it's God keeping his promise to Abraham and Sarah. Each name is a testimony of God's faithfulness. And God has given Israel the big picture. Jacob, do this. Now, here's what God has done and and is doing. Look at all these people that are part of your family. And ultimately... Genesis fifty twenty. God's bringing about the present result to preserve many people alive. And as we said, ultimately, because these people are alive, because Isaac, because Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Judah and Joseph, Jacob surviving the famine, ultimately, watch the big picture. That there's a savior. If Israel, the, uh, this Jacob and his sons were to die, then there cannot be Jesus, and Satan would win. So when you look at this passage with all these names, all these names are pointing to the fact that God wins. They're pointing to the fact that God's going to keep His promise. That there's going to be a Messiah. That there's going to be a savior. This is the big picture. Joseph being sold into slavery and ending up in Egypt and being second in command is part of the big picture that God is doing something massive. He's making the nation, uh, this family of Israel, into a massive nation. When they leave Egypt, there are over two million people. And then eventually to bring salvation and even restoration of the whole universe. Now, this is the point I think the text and I am making as well with all these names. And several of the names, like the sons of Judah and others, are not good people. 
they're not necessarily significant people. They're not necessarily people that by their charismatic personal dynamism shook the world. They weren't necessarily, perhaps Jacob was and, and a few others, but all of these are individuals that were not necessarily incredibly successful in life. They were normal individuals, but yet God, through Joseph, through Jacob, through Judah, and through them, and through the brothers of Israel, they weren't always the most obedient people, the brothers of Joseph. God is doing something marvelous, something fantastic. Point. God, through ordinary people, is doing something massive. Or if it can be crystallized even more. Going through hard times or good times is not just about you. Going through hard times or good times is not just about you. You can see that in chapter 50, verse 20, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. God is doing something great in these people and through these people, but it's not just about them. It's for the future. And it's for many people. And it's from many ages, and it's ultimately for the restoration of the whole universe. Do we have that big picture in mind? That when you're going through trials of life, and it's difficult, and it's hard, it's not just about you. Have this big picture in your mind. God is doing something incredible causing all things to work together for good, for his glory and for your good. God is faithful. Do what he says in his word. It's his perfect faithfulness that is the foundation for your faithfulness. God will be faithful to give us whatever we need to be faithful. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you keep your promises. Lord, may we become more and more faithful people. Lord, we know that you are awesome in your faithfulness. You're perfect in your faithfulness. Every night when we lay down and go to bed, we can say, Lord, you have been perfect in your love and perfect in your faithfulness. Based upon that, Lord, may we take ever-increasing steps of obedience, Lord. May we go forward and not backward. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.